I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas on the Myth of the Secular. Secularism became very taken for granted in large sectors of the population at the same time that there was a renewal of religious expression in other sectors of the population. And so the so-called culture wars put this back on the stage. And the secularism that became so taken for granted was in a certain way impoverished. It didn't have a good way to talk about itself. And so it's very hard to have a good conversation between these two sides because the meaning of secularism has been collapsed into not religion. In modern Western societies, a powerful ideology divided the world into two opposed domains, the religious and the secular. Religion was private. The secular was public and political. As societies modernized, they would become more secular, and religion would gradually lose its remaining public significance. Until quite recently, this was the story told in Western social thought, but it no longer seems to fit. Religion, far from fading, has grown ever stronger, and modernization has developed along different lines in different societies. The category of religion doesn't quite fit the forms of worship and the ways that people hold their faiths in India before the advent of colonial modernity. Religion is an odd term to be used for such faiths. Today on Ideas, we begin a new series called The Myth of the Secular. We'll feature it all this week and part of next. You'll hear theologians, anthropologists, sociologists, and political philosophers talk about why the old map of the religious and the secular no longer fits the territory, and about how it might be redrawn. Here's Ideas producer David Cayley. The idea of secularization was once a foundation of Western social theory. Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud, Max Weber and Emile Durkheim all agreed that modernization would undercut the significance of religion. As late as 1959, the prominent American sociologist C. Wright Mills summed up this consensus in his book, The Sociological Imagination. Once the world was filled with the sacred, Mills wrote. Then the forces of modernization swept across the globe and loosened its hold. In due course, he concluded, the sacred shall disappear altogether, except possibly in the private realm. These words, when they were written, described what amounted to a law in sociology. Everyone was on the same bus and headed for the same destination. Thirty years later, they seem antique, reminders of a vanished era and a failed theory. The influential Austrian-American sociologist Peter Berger publicly recanted. He had promoted the secularization thesis in his early work, then noticed that things were not proceeding at all as predicted. In an essay published in 1999, he wrote, The world today, with some exceptions, is as furiously religious as it ever was, and in some places more so than ever. 
This means that a whole body of literature by historians and social scientists, loosely labeled secularization theory, is essentially mistaken. The predicted withering away of religion had not happened. This doesn't necessarily mean that modern societies are not distinctively secular, but it does mean that the secular must be defined by something other than just the absence of religion. The secular needs a new story, a new myth, one could say, so long as the word myth is understood not as untruth, but as the big picture, our largest sense of what's going on. One proposal has come from Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor in his celebrated book, A Secular Age. Modern secularization theory, according to Taylor, was what he calls a subtraction story. Just take away religion, and the secular is what is left. That's the old Enlightenment story that writers like British biologist Richard Dawkins are still telling. Religion is a kind of vestigial organ, or ideological parasite. Simply remove it, and things will appear as they really are, and always have been. Taylor presents a more complicated genealogy. He sees secular society as a child of religion, a mutation, as he sometimes says, of Western Christianity. Taylor's book, and the crisis that provoked it, have produced a lot of talk and writing in recent years. One of the people at the center of this discussion has been American sociologist Craig Calhoun. In his capacity as the head of the American Social Science Research Council, the founder of New York University's Institute for Public Knowledge, and now the director of the London School of Economics, he has been a key contributor to this conversation. He co-edited a book called Rethinking Secularism, which appeared in 2011. I called on Craig Calhoun later that year, and he told me that he and his co-authors were animated by the question, if the secular is not just the absence of religion, the old subtraction story, then what is it? For him, answering this question involved unmasking the old myth of the secular. This is a story that goes back, he says, to the 17th century and the 1648 Peace of Westphalia, which ended what are almost always called the Wars of Religion in Western Europe. Its origin myth is it used to be that there was this great confounding of religion and politics. And then in 1648, it was realized in the Peace of Westphalia that religion would be a domestic matter and international affairs would be secular matters between states. And we would not have papal emissaries doing diplomacy. States would have diplomats. And a whole series of things follow from this. So it's a half-true or less-than-half-true historical account that functions as a story that makes sense of a certain idea about how states relate to each other in terms of their real interests and what's called realism in international affairs, as against the issues of faith and belief and solidarities that cut across nations through religions, like Catholicism in Europe. 
So again, I call it a myth for a good reason. I think it's not a completely accurate historical account. But the field of international relations, including in its contemporary version, which is really a post-World War II phenomena, embraced this understanding of itself and became remarkably secular. So there were virtually no studies on the role of religion in international politics. In uh, the wake of 2001 and the 9-11 the attacks, uh, with others I edited a book on understanding September 11th in which the great international relations scholar Robert Cohane wrote a piece which among other things said, I guess this is a lesson to the field of international relations that religion matters and we should take this seriously. You might have said, gee, weren't there some other <laughs> lessons of the same kind earlier? <laughs> but the field was very well insulated against that. And the notion was that religion was a domestic matter. Well, that mirrors the idea that religion's a private matter, not a public matter. And it then makes you realize our very way of distinguishing private and public is shaped by a history of figuring out where religion goes. What we call the social science divisions of universities are shaped by the exclusion of the moral and religious. That should be in the humanities. It should be somewhere else because it's not science and the social scientists aspire since the late 19th century to a scientific understanding of their work. Craig Calhoun views the division of the secular from the religious as a crucial modern innovation. It founded the science of international relations anchored the emerging distinction between the public and the private, and structured the modern university. And yet, all this was highly idealized, a theory more than a description. One of its crucial supports was the idea of religion as a chronic source of violence and war. This idea was reinforced by the name almost universally applied by historians to the various armed conflicts that racked Europe between the time of the German Peasants' Revolt in 1524 and the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, the Wars of Religion. The wars of that era, you can say, are wars of religion, and that's a very common account of this. But they are wars of taxation, they are wars of state building, they are the wars of national states in the making against empires, multinational empires, as a project. So part of what gets settled in the 17th century is that there will not be any European empire ruling Europe. So another version of the myth, like the myth of the secular state, is the myth of the national state. And if you think, and in fact, not just if you think, I mean, lots of writing about European history assumes that what you have is the growth of national states, end of story, and not empire, right? Because the empire Spain loses Britain, right? You say, wait a minute, weren't there some empires later? I, don't I remember a French and a British empire and a late German race for empire? And these are structured as two completely different stories. The nation states, which are established in Europe. And then there are these imperial projects abroad. They're studied by different historians until very recently there were the very few people integrating these. Yet, you know, where was the first professorship of English? In India, not in England. And the nation didn't take on its form as nation by itself, inside itself, outside of its relations to the rest of the world. It was shaped by those relations to the rest of the world, including empire. And so the, the myth 
is inside each nation, in some self-sufficient way, people gathered the resources to be that nation and became it. And therefore, you have a story. And think of the field of history and how it's taught. It's taught as French history and British history, Canadian history and US history. The units of the teaching reflect and reinforce that view that nation states are the units. And they're the units before they're ever there. Before they're, you know, Canadian history starts before there's a Canada. And, you know, U.S. history starts before there's United States, but even Swedish history. I once went to an exhibition at the Swedish National History Museum that um, started with Swedish cavemen. It called them, <laughs> what do you mean, Swedish cavemen, right? And, and there were dwellers in caves wearing skins a very long time ago on what is now Sweden, but the claiming of that long time ago for Sweden is mythological. And so that's what I mean about this, the thing of the, the secular and religious being structured in ways that are mythological, in ways that reflect later projects of sorting them out. Sorting things out, in a sense, defines the modern age. But the categories into which things got sorted often retrospectively, were usually a lot neater and cleaner than the messy reality to which they were applied. The Enlightenment is a case in point, Craig Calhoun says. It was supposedly a secularizing project, and so its religious dimension was forgotten. The Enlightenment includes a lot of religious thinkers who are changing the way they think about religion. It's not only secular or anti-religious thinkers, but the story of the Enlightenment becomes the story of sweeping away traditions, sweeping away the shadows and the mysteries in order to shine the light in certain places. And the very extent to which the image of the light is an image that's been deployed in more religious vernaculars through Plato and Christianity and a variety of sources is lost and the account of the Enlightenment that lives on in our story is a sort of Voltairean Enlightenment in which religion is being seen to be myth and superstition. The image of light in Enlightenment is an example of a phenomenon on which a number of contemporary writers have commented. The way in which modern Western societies continually redeploy a basic repertoire of themes and images drawn from the Bible. This tends to be forgotten, Craig Calhoun says, when the secular is treated as a self-standing reality from which religion has been removed. The reclassification of religion as a private matter certainly had its justification. It fostered free choice and undercut religious oppression. But it also hid certain of religion's very public features, notably the way in which it has again and again been the impetus for political reform. You lose sight of Christian socialism, right? Or you lose sight of all the sort of spiritual seekers of various New Age kinds that have flourished in the last 40 years. You lose sight of the extent to which the civil rights movement was founded in black churches and supported by white Christians and Jews organized often through their religious communities. And you can produce an account of it that makes it sound like it's just politics and just economics and just you know, residential integration in schools, but it's not a true account of it 
because there really is much more of a role of religion and even sometimes very traditional religion linked to very non-traditional political stances. Religion has too often been written out of our accounts of the public, the political, the secular, Craig Calhoun argues. This has produced, in his view, a flattened, one-dimensional secularism that can't deal with religion at all and wishes it would just go away. The result in our time, he thinks, has been a dialogue of the deaf between this impoverished secularism and resurgent political religion. Secularism became very taken for granted in large sectors of the population at the same time that there was a renewal of religious expression in other sectors of the population. And so the so-called culture wars and the clash between a number of people from somewhat different positions, but often called the new religious right and things like that, though they're by no means all right-wing, who say religion has a place in public, and a number of people who think it's both obvious that it doesn't and almost certainly reactionary if it is let into public. And so there's a kind of liberal, widespread, automatic secularism. It turns out that the it's very hard to have a good conversation between these two sides because the meaning of secularism has been collapsed into not religion. And then you're just having a conversation pro or con religion. Rather than recognizing things, and this is why the historical exceptions matter so much, recognizing that the secularism embodied in constitutional separation of church and state in the United States is an agreement among religious people about no one sect dominating over the other sects, not a quarrel between religion and non-religion. And the result is that there's much more of a marketplace of religion, possibly one of the reasons why people in the United States have higher levels of religious practice than most other uh, equally rich and developed societies, is that there is no established church and that there's much more of a find your own version, find the one you like approach to it, a kind of market approach. And that has kept a renewal going on as new providers of religion to the market show up, Mormons famously in the 19th century, but a variety of others at other points. And the issue then for our current era is we lose that sense of secularism How do we get along with different religious beliefs as well as non-religion? We lose the sense, the, the liberal secularists of today, that religion in the public sphere was often on the progressive or left side in American history. The anti-slavery movement, but then the civil rights movement, wouldn't have existed without strong religious action. So it's not the case that religion in the public sphere was always reactionary. That's part of this sort of mythical understanding that there were just these bad traditions being swept away by enlightenment. Has religion in the public sphere sometimes been intolerant and promoted legitimation of inequality and oppression? Of course. So it's not automatically good any more than it's automatically bad. But you can to have a richer discussion, you need new language. And so trying to get away from the limited language is, I think, the issue. So some people say, well, it's 
post-secular, but that still sort of accepts the notion that there was previously a clear secular, um, rather than that what people began to do was to use this as a shorthand for saying we're not going to talk about religion. The secular, in Craig Calhoun's opinion, needs to be rethought. The book he recently co-edited is called Rethinking Secularism. One pivotal concern is the terms on which religion participates in the public sphere. This question has engaged two of the heavyweights of contemporary political philosophy, Germany's Jürgen Habermas and Canada's own Charles Taylor. Their debates on this subject have been published as the power of religion in the public sphere. At issue between them is the question, is religion, because it violates the norms of reason that ought to govern public discussion, a special case? Or should religion be treated as just another position in a public discussion in which no position is ever entirely reasonable? Taylor suggests that religion is not some sort of radically other that is not available to rational discussion, that the issue of being able to have a conversation between the philosopher and the theologian is not fundamentally different from other kinds of divides. And so where Habermas would say that there are these deep problems, that religion can't be recognized in government, even if it's admitted in some ways in the public sphere, that because it never is fully subject to rational argumentation back and forth. And Taylor says, yes, but that's true of, say, Chineseness versus Canadianness, and you can't not let that into the discussion. The fact that there's not a rational answer to what's the relation, that you can't resolve this and say, oh, well, these are the three common denominators that matter, and now we've eliminated the problem of difference. That, in fact, what you get is an ongoing conversation. You get mutual learning. Each side is changed by that mutual learning. And religion is the same as nationality or ethnic differences and things um, in the sense that it's not completely commensurable, it's not completely bridgeable, but it's no more inaccessible to discussion than they are. And so part of what I call the myth of secularism is setting up religion as being that thing that you can't really have a conversation about. The most radical version of all versions of there's no accounting for taste. So Taylor is calling for a, a more thoroughgoing pluralism. Yes, and a in more which religion open is attitude. In which religion is not an exceptional case. Exactly. But Habermas continues to think it is. Exactly. There's something exceptional about it, that there's something ineffable right. at its core right. which makes it different. Exactly. So what even, do you think? even while he's reaching out, he thinks that. What do you I'm think? with Taylor unambiguously on this one. That is, I think there are things that make it extremely hard to explain religiously inspired positions to people who are not religiously inspired or explain why that doesn't move people to people who think it just obviously should move them, right? So I think it is really hard sometimes, but it's also really hard across a variety of other divides sometimes, and that's what we mean by serious cultural divides. Some national distinctions are really hard to bridge in conversation. Some class distinctions are really hard to bridge in conversation. So maybe religions harder more often, but it's not categorically different 
It's not that the others are all available to reasoned discussion and religion is not. And that means thinking differently about both sides. It means not only recognizing that you can have reasoned discussion among people with different religious ideas, it means that you have to recognize that not everything else gets somehow completely harmonized into a rational account either that you lose something with all sorts of cultural differences if you try to reduce them to propositional systems and debates over truth value. The light in the Enlightenment was reason. And as far as the radical and skeptical branch of the Enlightenment was concerned, religion was its opposite, its scapegoat, its shadow, the epitome of unreason. Categorically different as Craig Calhoun says, from the reasoned discourses that are qualified to enter the public square. This view is an integral part of the reflexive secularism that Calhoun indicts for its unthinking part in the contemporary culture war. But he thinks that the situation is changing, as religion's failure to go away becomes ever more obvious and unavoidable. The secular schemes that once promised to give history purpose and direction have all failed. The end of communism is an emblematic moment in this respect, but the faith in progress that once animated liberal democracies has been almost equally bruised. In the face of this almost universal disillusionment, religion can be a reactionary force, a comforting retreat into the supposed certainties of tradition, but Craig Calhoun thinks that something else is going on as well, that religion can also offer people creative resources in times when no one can quite see the way ahead. Religion enables people to pursue things they really need and want to pursue intellectually. There is, I think, a great unsettledness in the world. The categories in which things make sense at various levels are uncertain. And that means a search for adequate ways to think about big questions. And religion has thousands of years in very diverse traditions of trying to generate ways to think about big questions. So it's very attractive, partly because it is something that connects to their own individual histories and heritages, but partly because it, it offers a rich vocabulary for the discussion. One important dimension of this rich vocabulary is its universality. The secular international order rests on nation states. The motherland, or fatherland, constitutes the citizen's moral horizon and ultimate obligation. The major religions provide an enlarged horizon and membership in an international community. A point, Craig Calhoun says, that is sometimes overlooked. Religions are misunderstood when they are thought to be the local sometimes. Um, there are very local versions, but you know, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, these are global religions. And so they are global populations of people, circulations of arguments, beliefs, practices. And so religions are among the major actually existing examples of transnational globalization in the world, far from being simply the local. 
it goes back to our discussion of ways in which we somehow very strangely misunderstand things that should seem obvious to us. Like, who could be confused about the Catholic Church being global? Yet, there is lots of talk about religion and tradition and culture as somehow being those local things from which you escape into a secular, cosmopolitan, capitalist market of the world. You know, and, and I think that that's, it's an indicative misunderstanding. Secondly, I think that there's a renewal of attention to civilization to connect some things that have been made separate as though economy, politics, society, culture were really different things in the world, like they are different studies academically. Um, and the concept of civilization is one attempt to kind of get those back into the same discussion. And I think that's really crucial. Craig Calhoun argues that a renewed attention to civilization is one way of gaining a comprehensive view of things in a world paralyzed by the division and subdivision of knowledge. And this renewed attention has led to a fresh appreciation of the many ways in which religion has informed the sensibility of each civilization. Calhoun's special interest is in the ways in which religion has inspired people's efforts to create a better society. Religion is sometimes taken as being about the transcendent, about a dimension beyond existence. But there is also, Calhoun says finally, a beyond within history. I think there's also something very important about a kind of secular transcendence, if you will, a transcendence in history that is centrally linked up with the aspiration to go beyond the way the world is now, and sometimes to go beyond it by building new social institutions, by having a movement to change society. So there's a kind of transcendence embedded in the movement that says that we can create more peaceful relations between states, the movement that says we can create more equitable and just relations in our society by changing institutions. We are transcending the world as we find it and the idea of being trapped by the world as we find it, limited to just that which is there now. So we don't say, oh, well, people are greedy. What can you do about it? Let's have global capitalism. You say, people are complicated. There are possibilities and we can make something different. And that's also linked to a kind of transcendence, a kind of hope for going beyond that which is given to us, even when it's in non-religious terms and when it's situated in human history. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 159. Today's program begins a new series called The Myth of the Secular. It's presented by David Cayley. The secular has its myth, Craig Calhoun has been arguing. Its key elements are, first, that a neat separation can be made between the secular and the religious, second, that religion is a private matter of no public significance, and finally, that religion is a uniquely irrational pursuit and therefore categorically different from the secular styles of reasoning that are qualified to enter into public discussion. These ideas all need revision, but that doesn't necessarily imply that we are now, as some would have it, in a post-secular age or that secularization has gone into reverse. 
There are those who think that secularism needs to be rehabilitated rather than abandoned. That's the argument of Indian scholar Rajiv Bhargava in an essay called Rehabilitating Secularism. It's in Rethinking Secularism, the collection I mentioned earlier that Craig Calhoun edited. Bhargava is a senior fellow and the director of the Center for the Study of Developing Societies in Delhi. I spoke with him when he was in Canada recently to pay tribute to one of his teachers, Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor, on the occasion of Taylor's 80th birthday. As a prologue to his defense of a reworked secularism, Bhargava began by telling me that there was a time in India when the very idea of religion, and therefore of secularity, made no sense. The category of religion doesn't quite fit the forms of worship and the ways that people hold their faiths in India before the advent of colonial modernity. Religion is an odd term to be used for such faiths for a variety of reasons. First of all, there isn't a well-bounded community of believers. There is no institutionalized structure like the church. There is no fixed doctrine. Lots of things which make uh, religions such as Hinduism not very easily adapt to the category of religion. The features by which Rajiv Bhargava defines religion the well-bounded community, the structuring institution, the fixed doctrine, all derive from Christianity. And even so, medieval Christianity had no concept of religion as something that could be understood apart from an entire way of life. The idea of religion that came to India with the British Raj was a modern idea, shaped in Europe Bhargava says, during the 16th and 17th centuries. Religion, as we know from some of the very you know, great scholars working on Christianity and on comparative religion, we know that the term religion was really born during the conflicts in Europe in the 16th century and uh, a little beyond that. So the category of religion itself was not really applicable even to Christianity, religio was not a noun. It was more an adjective. Religiosity was a quality of human beings and not an abstract noun, not a system to which human beings belonged. And it's something like that, you know, happened in the 16th, 17th century in Europe, whereby a religion as a system was born to which human beings belonged. And then on the basis of that, a whole variety of other so-called religions were invented. So yeah, religion is very much a modern invention. And it is one of those concepts that very early on was globalized, thanks to colonialism. And now it seems that almost everywhere, all the elites in large parts of the world think of their faith and think of their forms of worship in terms of religion. 
in contrast to and some very often or in opposition to other religions. You might have noticed that in Southeast Asia, in China, in Japan, as well as in India, it's possible for individuals to have multiple faiths, in other words, to belong to different religions. So the total number of Buddhists and Shintoists, the total number would always add up to more than the population of Japan. And the reason why that is so is because very often an individual would say that he belongs to many faiths. So now that's something which is not really possible if you are very strictly adhering to the notion of religion, because religion implies that you are strongly bound to one particular community with a specific set of intellectual doctrines, one scripture, allegiance to an institutional arrangement, and so on. And that doesn't apply to Asian religions. In India, and East Asia more generally, there was what Rajiv Bhargava calls deep religious diversity. Religion and philosophy overlapped, and it was possible to learn from and participate in different traditions. There was friction, of course. There's always friction. But no organized blocks stood permanently opposed to one another. Then the idea of religion was introduced. What the category of religion does is to pigeonhole you. The equivalent of that in political philosophy would be a very doctrinal ideology, so that, and Marx obviously comes to mind. And that's what happens with religion, so that you belong to one exclusive community, as I said, in distinction from, demarcated from, and sometime in opposition to other religious communities. So it's not that there were no skirmishes between people who followed different paths or followed different faiths. And maybe there were some, sometimes there were even conflicts. And it's entirely possible that those conflicts erupted into some kind of violence. But it, these were kind of more random and sporadic. And they didn't have a very clear theological, ideological edge to them so that they would just come and go. Uh, the category of religion fixes everything and accentuates differences and conflicts and makes them more or less essential and permanent. The idea of religion, exclusive, dogmatic, authoritative, was initially foreign to the Indian experience. But it was part of the package that came with British colonial rule and it established itself among Indian elites. Diverse religious practices were united under the name of Hinduism, a term introduced by British merchants and colonial officials to designate the presumptive religion of their subjects. Hindus and Muslims in time became rivals, producing, in 1947, the partition of the subcontinent into India and Pakistan. Religion, Rajiv Bhargava says, had become a deadly reality. The fact of the matter is that two nations were created based on religion. And now, in this very highly elite-driven process, 
a very large number of people have begun to see their faiths as religions. The constitution in India also, well, it doesn't mention any particular religion in the document, but it talks about religious communities and it even talks about religious minorities. So having accepted this entire process, which is at least 200 years old in India, and once it's lodged itself in the collective psyche of Indians, I think the best response to that is the secular. The secular is a position outside of religion. And such a position is necessary, Ajif Bhargava argues, because once you have religions that see themselves as being in competition, you need a referee and a neutral ground on which the referee can stand. If you have different religious communities, then you have to, in some ways, have a public space which is configured in such a way that these different communities give recognition to one another. And any modern state which is installed in these societies must also give recognition to all religious communities. The Indian constitution gives this recognition in the form of collective or community rights, which are enshrined alongside individual rights. Neither is given legal predominance. That is to be decided according to circumstances. Both are mentioned and it's left unspecified which one of them will override the other because that is something which is left to be determined by the wisdom and intelligence of people in a particular context. Or indeed, there may be contexts where you don't have to get one to override the other. You can find some kind of a balance between the two. And this kind of balancing is something which is which is not considered to be objectionable or morally weak. It's something that is understood to be one of the great sort of moral strengths because when you have two values which are in some kind of a conflict with one another, then rather than give up one altogether in order to achieve the second, you might just want to somehow reconcile them and balance them. Collective or communal rights are, by and large, alien to the Western tradition. Multiculturalism is no more than a very tentative beginning, and even that much remains controversial in Europe. The German Chancellor, Angela Merkel, recently proclaimed that multiculturalism in Germany had proven a complete failure. The roots of this difference between Europe and India lie deep in European history, Rajiv Bhargava says. Most European states began as confessional or single-religion states. Think of Spain at the end of the 15th century, expelling Jews and Muslims to make itself a Catholic state. There was a further sorting out in the 17th century, as Protestant ascendancy was established in Northern Europe. So European states generally faced the problem of one dominant religion against which a more secular ethos had to fight to establish itself. 
Secularism became largely a question of the rights of individuals in the face of religious oppression, and the state often became an opponent of religion. India's circumstances were entirely different. If you already have resolved the problem of religious diversity by, in a sense, liquidating it, and by having only one religious community, then the only problematic issue before you would be how do you emancipate the individual from oppressive social groups such as the church or from the state? So in the context that we're talking about, namely religion, the only thing that would matter is what I call intra-religious domination. That is to say the domination within religion by a small number of people of a greater number of people. Oppression of women or the oppression of the laity by the church, uh, clergy, and things like that. So giving individual rights would be sufficient here. Or achieving, struggling for individual rights would be a way to counter intra-religious domination. But in India, the problem is not just oppression within religion, but also oppression, possible oppression between religions, which happens in the 19th and 20th centuries, you would equally be concerned about inter-religious domination. It follows from this that if you are concerned about inter-religious domination, you would want to help minority religions, weaker religions, by giving them subsidies and so on. But you would also, because you want to fight intra-religious domination, you would also give the state the capacity to intervene in religions, both in the majority religion and in the minority religion, in case there is some oppression or marginalization or exclusion that is taking place either between religions or within a religion. So the Indian constitution makers developed the idea of what I call principal distance, where the state will engage with religion or disengage from it. It will engage positively in relig with religion, that is to say, help it, or engage negatively with it, which is to say, hinder it. So to some extent, this hostility can be there in relation to some practices of religion. And it may do it in one religion more than it does in another religion. So even-handedness doesn't mean that you have to do the same thing in the same manner with regard to all religions. That's not the idea. The idea is that you adopt this one or the other strategy of intervening or not intervening, depending entirely upon which of these policies is going to reduce and minimize the two forms of domination that I talked about, that namely inter- and intra-religious domination. Principal distance is a key term in Rajiv Bhargava's argument. The state establishes its neutrality and then works to maintain a level playing field, acting sometimes as a patron, sometimes as a referee, sometimes as an obstacle to ensure equality of treatment. Individual and collective rights, as he said earlier, have to be balanced. The difficulties of doing this and the subtleties that are involved can be seen in cases where individual rights, like those of women, for example, come into conflict with community rights. A lot of women 
just as there are a lot of men, see themselves both as women and as religious persons. They see themselves both as women and as Muslims. And what we have to ensure is that they don't have to choose between one or the other because the moment they have been forced to make a choice, particularly in an atmosphere where a large majority of, say, non-Muslims are hostile, women will give up their claim that they have as individuals who are demanding rights and will begin to bear the burden of the whole community and defending it and so on and so forth. I've seen it happen so many times. So the first thing we have to do, if we wish really that gender justice be introduced in whichever religion is unjust to women, the first thing we have to do is to make that entire community, particularly the vulnerable sections in that community, comfortable. The second thing we have to do is to ensure that there are ways by which these people can fearlessly express their voice in the public domain. And once they do that, then I think the chances of our being able to realize our objectives against the orthodoxy, which is pretty strong, in, particularly in those societies where there's a lot of hostility. I think we can see a, a change happening. So much as I would like that these things happen rather quickly, the fact of the matter is that there are many contexts where this takes time, and it takes time not least because of the impatience shown by people who refuse to understand the perspective of these different believers, people with differences, let's say Muslims in this case, because that seems to be a big issue in a large number of countries in the West. I think that we very often fail to understand their perspective from the inside. And by failing to do that, we defeat our own purpose. Unwillingness to polarize individual and community rights is characteristic, in Rajiv Bhargava's view, of India's unique and evolving style of secularism. Its spirit of accommodation makes it dramatically unlike Western secularisms. And yet, it is still a secularism, insofar as it creates a neutral site outside of religion from which conflicts can be managed and adjudicated. He recognizes that what he has put forward is an ideal, of which practice often falls short, and yet he thinks that it does offer a model to Western states that are now dealing with a religious diversity for which their historical experience has left them quite unprepared. This whole complicated idea of secularism, which I've just enunciated, this is a conception that even though it isn't followed in India properly and very imperfectly, but that's not the concern here. That's not my concern. It's just this idea and this conception that, in my view, has great future and holds a great lesson to the rest of the world, given that in the last century and continuing in this century, the whole idea of a single religion nation-state or single religious society is collapsing. 
because of migration of people from former colonies and because of intensified globalization, you now begin to see pre-Christian, Christian and post-Christian faiths all living together in the same political order. And that makes many, many societies resemble India. And so the kind of political conception of secularism that has developed in India in response to these diversity-related issues, not in the same form, and therefore I don't want to suggest that India is a blueprint, not at all, but I think it's, it would be very, very instructive to see the best practices in India, as well as the worst practices in India, to see how these societies which are coping with religious diversity literally for the first time under modern conditions, how they have to devise decent, morally desirable, ethically sensitive ways of governing in a religion-sensitive, freedom-sensitive and a democratic manner. On Ideas, you've listened to the first episode of The Myth of the Secular. The series continues tomorrow at this time. It was written and presented by David Cayley, with the help of Bernie Lucht, Dave Field, and Liz Nage. You can revisit the program or download a podcast at our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there and find out what's coming up on the show. If you're in the Toronto area, join me Wednesday night for the finale of this year's Massey Lectures, The Universe Within by Neil Turok. We'll be at Kerner Hall, 273 Bloor Street West, and the show starts at 8 o'clock. For ticket details, go to cbc.ca slash Masseys. The executive producer of Ideas is Pam Bertrand, and I'm Paul Kennedy. News is next.